Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Big Ideas Podcast. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Michael Millerman. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, so Michael, by, by way of introduction, I, I would like you to, to uh, I would like to ask you the question, which is when you look back at sort of the arc of your work, what is the thread that, that ties it together? Or what is sort of the project that you see yourself uh, undergoing? W- one project I see you, you undergoing is, is realizing that there's sort of only three uh, accepted uh, political philosophies. There, there's uh, liberalism, there's communism, and there's fascism. And, and I think you see this uh, in, in, in channeling other works like du- other thinkers like Dukin, this uh, injustice in the sense that everything that is right of liberalism is considered fascism. And so I think what you are advocating for or trying to sh- showcase is that there is a, another political theory that is not that is right of liberalism, but that is not fascism. Is, is that your big project or just edit, feel free to edit my, my description of it? How, how would you describe your, your project or set of projects? So that fits into it, but I wouldn't say that's the big project. I first got a sense of the question that has been the theme of my research over the last however many years as an, un- as an undergraduate in philosophy at the University of British Columbia. And the formulation of the question that hit home to me then was, was this. What is the relationship between how we think about politics, political life on one hand, and how we think about metaphysics, ontology, or fundamental philosophy on the other hand? So it's not obvious that those two things should bear really any relationship to one another. If I were to ask somebody who's well aware of ordinary political opinions, someone who reads newspapers and watches the news and is on social media about politics, about the implicit metaphysics of their positions, you know, it's not obvious that they would have thought about that or that they're aware that there could be such a connection. But but what I discovered at some point, in part through... Leo Strauss's reconstruction of the history of political philosophy in part through some other thinkers is that actually there's a intimate relationship between the philosophical level and the political level, but that it has to be made explicit. It has to be brought to light and that we have to sort of connect the dots that relate a thesis about the nature of being with its potential political consequences or implications. So that was the question that sort of motivated my research broadly. Now, uh, Dugan, who writes about the fourth political theory, which says that the 20th century was this ideological struggle between liberalism, communism, and fascism, that all three of them have proven to be uh, inadequate and as well as wrong, and therefore that we need to find not only a new political ideology, but here combining now the philosophical dimension of the question, a new philosophical basis or foundation for thinking about political life. So we but we have to assess what went wrong, not just politically or ideologically with the ideologies of the 20th century, but what they got wrong about the nature of the human being, about knowledge, time, about the whole in which we find ourselves. So it's it's that's what really attracts me in uh, in these thinkers is that either they're explicit about the relationship between first philosophy and politics or they're aware of it and give us some tools with which to think about that that connection. Dugan, if he only wrote, just again, as an example, because if any of your listeners uh, know me, I don't want to presume where they may know me from, but one of the ways that I gained uh, some recognition was through my translations of Alexander Dugan, this Russian political philosopher. I was the, one of the first to translate his works into English. I subsequently translated uh, quite a few of his books and wrote 
many articles about him at a time that he wasn't particularly taken seriously as a political philosopher. He was seen as an ideologue, an activist, and uh, as a geopolitician or traditionalist, but not really as a philosopher. So what made him so interesting to me was that he combined his ideological analysis with, for example, many thoughtful and penetrating books on Heidegger that are very philosophical. You know, they're not, uh, they're not politi cheap political tracts or um, anything like that. They're not doctrinaire. They're genuinely um, searching and, and penetrating. So that's where he fits in for me. Leo Strauss is somehow similar. He also writes both about political life and about the big philosophical questions. And that's what, that's what attracts me. I want to add one more, one more thing to this answer just to round out the picture. So when I was a graduate student at the University of Toronto and I was defending this view of the fourth political theory that we have to think outside the limits of liberalism, communism, fascism, fascism, as you rightly said, it's not fair to collapse all right-wing anti-liberalism into fascism as a way of discrediting it. One of the aims that I had in doing that wasn't so much politically to defend right-wing anti-liberalism as it was to reorient people towards the broad problem of our presuppositions and to bring to light the broad spectrum of political theory. Because if we're artificially lopping off one whole part of that spectrum out of pretty uh, transparently political motivations, you know, whoever's not on my side is a fascist, whoever's a fascist is bad, therefore whoever doesn't agree with me is bad, right? Is ultimately reducing all your enemies very quickly to like genocidal maniacs. I mean, that's transparently polemical. But what if we actually think about what's presupposed in all of the schools of political theory, wherever they happen to be on the spectrum, as a defense of the act of thinking, you know, sort of as a defense of a philosophical comportment. So under other circumstances, and I'll, this is the last thing I'll say in this long answer, under other circumstances, if it was a milieu where right-wing anti-liberalism was dominant, but nobody was thinking about the potential philosophical criticism of that model, you know, then I would be tempted to try to tip the scale in the opposite direction because my defense my ultimate defense stemming from as i said my original interest in philosophy and my acquaintance with leo strauss is to try to is to try to sort of defend the dignity of the philosophical life and there's no you can't do that if there's a whole subset of questions that are totally off the table that are criminal criminalized effectively you know and that are only interpreted that any interest in those issues or questions is always interpreted in the worst possible light. All of that is totally antithetical to uh, genuine, I think, understanding. Yeah, and 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 have these questions always always, uh, always been uh, criminalized, or how did they become criminalized? And maybe going back to you, you brought up you know, Strauss and Dugan as as making this or Heidegger. I'm, I'm not sure which one making this sort of connection explicit that you you were talking about. What, what's so unique about making it explicit is that other people you disagree with it or they just don't want to make it explicit. So there are a couple of things there. If um, if Leo Strauss, for example, is, is right about the basic tension between political life and philosophical life, which is that political life always rests on some sort of partial opinion, some half truth or some uh, horizon, narrowly constrained horizon. And philosophy always tries to see the big picture. So the philosopher might call into question some of the civic pieties or some of the ruling opinions, because in his desire to know, he has to subject the opinions to uh, deeper thought, right? Then the, the, if they're usually something taken for granted, let's say the goodness of freedom or of equality or of property rights, right? Some sort of basic political, uh, fundamental political idea, 
the philosopher can't stop there. He's got to be actually willing to think about the alternative. So Strauss argued there's always going to be a tension between the political way of life, what's required by the political community, and the philosophical way of life, what's required by independent thought. That because those are always in tension, there's always going to be something that's off limits from the point of view of the city. We, we live at a time where, you know, as a rule, it was right-wing anti-liberalism that was off limits, whereas liberalism and leftist critiques of liberalism were on the table. That's sort of like set the terms of the debate for the most part. Um, but in other contexts, there are other, um, other pieties that you're not allowed to question into. So there's always this conflict between what we can um, think as independent thinkers and what's required of us as citizens out of a sense of civic duty and responsibility. Uh, but that, but so the sort of the problem is constant, but the, you know, the specific players in that problem, they change from, from time to time. As far as the drawing the connection between a political position, theory, ideology on one hand, and its deep philosophical foundations on the other, well, what's really unique to my mind about Strauss, Dugan, and Heidegger in particular, all, all three of them, what's what sets them apart in a way, I mean, there are distinctions that are relevant to draw, but in order to make that connection well, you have to have a clear sense of the, the nature of, of, let me put it this way. If somebody has imbued through their education or through some other uh, avenue, a sense of philosophy that is derivative from the original sense of philosophy, a sense of philosophy that, for example, arrives from arises from a modification or a break with the classical sense. Okay, but they're unaware of the modification or the break. So, for example, they only know postmodern philosophy, but they don't know modern or classical philosophy, or they only know modern philosophy, but they don't know the way in which modern philosophy responded to ancient philosophy and modified it. So, unless they actually understand the sort of the history of philosophy they won't be as insightful in drawing the link between philosophy and politics as they would be otherwise. So Strauss made the history of philosophy and the history of political philosophy a central theme of his studies. So he was able to see, for example, what makes the modern premises or modern presuppositions so fundamentally different from the classical ones. And he was able to bring them both to light in a way that just the modern philosopher couldn't do. And Dugan sort of follows that as well. He's really interested in the fundamental shifts and breaks that, for example, distinguish, let's say, Plato from Descartes, you know, from Hegel, from Nietzsche, all of these kinds of things. So it requires a uh, it requires a broad enough scope that you can understand these transformations, coupled with a seriousness, competence, and depth that allows you to get each thinker in that sequence sort of right on their own terms, you know, because you can imagine fitting, let's say five great thinkers into a historical sequence, just slotting them in like, oh, this one's a classic, this one's a medieval, this one's a modern, this one's a postmodern, and I don't know, this one's post-postmodern, you know, something like that, right? So are there, am I talking about philosophers? Yes. Have I put them onto a historical timeline? Yes. Does that mean that I understand the actual teaching of any one of them? Absolutely not. Right. So if you combine actually an understanding of how they transformed each other's teachings, you know, historically and substantively, then it's sort of like the um, the Holy Grail, you know, and to me, Strauss and Heidegger and Dugan somehow triangulating among the three of them is like a good guide into that holy uh, into that search for the Holy Grail.
Yeah. And so I, I want to go deep into, into all three of them as, as deep as can allow over, over an hour. And so I want to ask you an impossible question of just to get sort of the, the stuff on the table that we'll go d- deeper into. And I know, you know, whole courses and majors can be made about all, all three of them and, and are, and you have a Strauss course coming that, that we should plug. The um, Can you describe the, the unique contribution that you are most um, interested in of the three sort of relative to each other or how each one sort of builds? And you have a whole book on, on this as well, which is great, but just to put it on the table so we can just go deeper. Um, sure. So we can start with Heidegger because both Strauss and Dugan state their indebtedness to to um to Heidegger and they do so uh sort of for the following reason so Heidegger German philosopher who's considered probably the most outstanding thinker of the 20th century um at least in this you know in the field of fundamental philosophy one of his accomplishments at least according to Strauss for example was to show that we haven't refuted the first philosophers of the Western tradition. So we have, it sometimes can seem like we've moved past them. We've progressed past them. We've developed, we, we have, we deal with different concepts than they dealt with somehow, maybe more sophisticated, more advanced, more progressive concepts than the classics had, but that in fact, what seems to be philosophical progress and conceptual development and advancement proves Heidegger shows, you know, proves upon Heidegger's analysis to actually be a forgetting of the fundamental issues, an alienation from them, a distancing, an uprooting. You see, so what we regard as progress, he regards as a having gone astray, let's say. Okay. And he demonstrates or he shows very meticulously and as much as possible without presupposing the thing that he's setting out to prove. So for example, you could look at the history of philosophy as a Cartesian, but then you know, you're already begging the question as to Descartes' place in that history. So what Heidegger tried to do is to bring us back to the essential questions, the essential issues as best as he could. And what he showed is that we actually haven't progressed in the way that we thought we have, that what we really have done is forgotten the most important questions. In particular, the question of the meaning of being. What does it mean to be? What is being? This is a question that pervades the constitution of the positive sciences because every science takes for granted in its uh, particular field the existence of the things that it studies. It has some implied notion of what it is to be. But what Heidegger says is that without properly rooting a fundamental understanding of the meaning of being, which we lack, all of the positive sciences are sort of free floating. They're not rooted. They are, um, they are on the verge of a serious crisis when it comes to their own foundations. Okay. So all of this forced him to return back to the primordial sources of our understanding of being, namely some sense, we ourselves, we ourselves are the primordial sources of our understanding of being, but our self-understanding has been occluded, we've been uh, blocked from access to an understanding of being by the residue of this tradition of philosophy that has sort of been handed down uncritically. So Heidegger, by putting everything sort of in its right place and excavating the question of the meaning of being, made possible a return to the genuine origins or foundations or basis of our tradition. Now, Strauss looked at that accomplishment and he said, this is is an, an incredible accomplishment. He said that he'd never seen anybody 
read and comment with as much concentration and penetration and understanding a text as Heidegger had done. He made every other intellectual giant of his time seem like a like an orphan, is the way that Strauss put it. In other words, Heidegger's meticulous commentaries just showed us how much it is true that we don't understand what we think we've advanced beyond. And fact, just to interrupt you for one second, what is the progress that we think we have made or society thinks it has made that he is refuting? So there are the way that Heidegger saw it, and Strauss maps this onto the history of political philosophy. That's sort of his unique twist. But what Heidegger saw was more about the history of philosophy than the history of political philosophy. And he said, for example, that we have come to think of ourselves, there are a couple of stages or episodes or, or uh, transformations in this long arc from the first beginning of philosophy to its end in Nietzsche. But for example, he thinks that when we talk about subject and object, when we talk about the statement as the locus of truth, so what it is for, what, what is truth? Truth is when a statement is, uh, you know, correlates to a state of affairs. So truth is a property of our sentences. Heidegger, by examining the sort of original notion of truth in Greek thought showed that the view of truth as a property of a sentence is highly derivative and in fact totally, like I said, blocks us from a more fundamental um, experience of the truth, an understanding of the meaning of what truth is that is fundamental but lost to us. So for, so he sees the traces, for example, from the, from the ancient thinkers to the scholastics where there's the creationist metaphysics. So he saw that as a sort of step in the wrong direction as far as an understanding of the underlying issues. Okay, so creationist metaphysics that sees being as created. So there are two kind of fun. Remember, the question that orients his thinking is the question of the meaning of being. So if we begin to think about being in terms of the highest being on one hand and created being on the other hand, it may be, and Heidegger thought it was the case, that we still, we seem to be understanding something, namely the difference between the creator and the created world, but we actually are still operating with an unclarified notion of the meaning of being in both of those cases, you see? Or another one is where you take being to be the actual or the real. So he said, we have this whole vocabulary that even the absolutely non-philosophical man on the street uses when he talks about reality or objectivity or a thing or a subject or truth. And Heidegger said, all of these key concepts, the key for human existence, they have a provenance. And we won't understand them unless we understand their provenance. And what happens when we do understand that is the shifts in meaning. Once we notice a shift in meaning, we can ask, was, was that shift, uh, did it get us closer to the essence of what that word is trying to get us to or farther from it? You see, so it's this massive operation. But definitely, for example, another, another example, maybe one that strikes close closer to home for contemporary um, for contemporaries is the idea of the will to power. So Nietzsche's, philosoph Nietzsche's philosophical idea that, you know, will to power, this phrase or this idea. So Heidegger wrote a thousand pages on Nietzsche, you know, four volumes on, on Nietzsche, not to mention, that's just in his Nietzsche books, not to mention all the other times he wrote about him, in order to show what's presupposed by thinking about being as will to power. So these are the kinds of things. On one hand, they, they may seem abstract or obscure or empty and uh, impractical, you know, having no bearing on a human life. But that too, Heidegger subjected to attention. He said, why should it be the case? Like we call ourselves human beings. We talk about being constantly. I say, the door is open. My, my phone is on the table. The coffee is cold. And everything that I say, whether I know it or not, I am speaking being. 
I'm a human being who's speaking being. And yet I treat being like it's something self-understood or trivial or meaningless. That is an amazing, like that observation, according to Heidegger, that little crack that we understand being roughly, even though we don't seem to notice that we do or care that we only do so roughly, that observation, if we stop and pay attention to it, is like a portal into genuine self-discovery. But this, this genuine self-discovery takes traverses the entire history of philosophical thought because that's the tradition the interpreta- whose, tr- whose interpretation of the meaning of being has become an obstacle to our genuine uh, you know, rootedness. So that's sort of how Heidegger is coming at it. And it's amazing. I just want to say one more thing. You can pull up, let's say I had a stack of Heidegger books next to me, which if I wasn't moving and they weren't in a moving box, I would. And I probably still have one out here somewhere. Imagine that I pulled up 10,000 pages okay, of Heidegger's writing or however many stack of it. And you pulled any one of them out at random. He would be asking almost the same question or type of question or formulation on each page. Who are we? What does it mean to say that we are? What does it mean to say that something is? Why did we understand being now as concept, now as energy, now as act, you know, now as subject or object? This is a constant, uh, it's an infinitely rich topic for him. And so he called himself a man of one book because he's always, always writing about the question of the meaning and truth of being. And uh, it's inexhaustibly rich. And thinkers like Strauss and Dugan come along to those inexhaustible riches and appreciate them and try to think through what they mean for their questions. And is, so is he so foundational because he's creating sort of the the uh, opening by which to sort of critique liberalism's metaphysics and, and then Dugan and Strauss go, you know, go further there? Or? Yeah, so that's like an accidental byproduct in some sense because his main task is to reacquaint us with the question of the meaning of being. Okay, but what happens when we do that is that we call the liberalism's metaphysics into question very radically, because what we see is that liberalism's metaphysics are premised on a really alienated, uprooted, derivative and distorted relationship toward the meaning of being, which is something that he shows not as his primary objective, but, you know, as a result of his inquiries. But it's not only liberalism that gets uh, that gets the shaft here, so to speak. Uh, he undermines the metaphysics of communism and he undermines the metaphysics of Nazism, not to mention, he thinks, of Christianity and of some other movements, schools and tendencies as well. What Heidegger says, you can imagine it. Here's an analogy that I happen to find helpful. Imagine uh, that you're on the 10th floor of a building. OK, and there are, let's say, 20 units on that floor. Okay, so maybe liberalism is, you know, 1001 and communism is 1005, fascism is 1008. They all occupy a different room or a different place on the horizontal level of the 10th floor of this building. That 10th floor is rep- it represents the presuppositions, the metaphysical presuppositions of a certain time. What Heidegger is trying to say is, I don't want to move you from 1001 to 1002 or to 1010. You know, I don't want to take you from ideology A to ideology D. Okay, liberalism, communism, fascism, whatever other ism we want. I want to try to bring us as close to the ground floor of this construction as possible so we can see what is holding it together, what it depends on, and what gives it its shape and and configuration in the first place. As you do that, as you drill down uh, with with Heidegger's help and guidance to the ground floor, what you see is the instability not only of liberalism, but of the other alternatives as well. And and not only of the other political ideologies, but of all of the positive sciences. Because he said, for example, that, you know, mathematics is in a, when he was writing, mathematics is in a crisis, natural science is in a crisis, the historical sciences are in a crisis. And all of this because they haven't driven down to the roots 
of their own presuppositions. Um, they didn't have the wherewithal to do that operation, even if they sensed the need for it. So, but when you go down to the ground floor, let's imagine just for a minute that Heidegger can do that. He can show us at least, you know, what, what the ninth floor and eighth floor and seventh floor and how all of that was built one on top of another. He can bring us back to the beginning. Then on one hand, he can leave it for us, right? To go back in the opposite direction to say, how would we reconstruct a political ideology knowingly now, you know, no longer alienated on the basis of some distorted presuppositions, but from the, you know, from a sense of the genuine meaning of being, can we turn around now, go back to the construction of a set, a new set of political concepts that reflect this more adequately or that embody it more adequately, you know? So that's a possibility that he opened up for Dugan, for example, when Dugan was looking for, okay, not everybody believes that a political teaching must have a philosophical foundation or must be able to give a genuine philosophical account of itself. There are some people who don't think that. Dugan is not among them. Dugan, as what I call a philosophical supremacist, does believe that if you have a political ideology, it's ultimately worthless unless it's genuinely philosophically well-founded. But when all philosophies seem to have been spent, you know, or somehow are, are no longer getting to the matter, getting to the truth of things, what do you do? And he, here's where for his whole project, he turned to Heidegger as, a, as, an, as an irreplaceable, you know, inestimable resource for getting to the bottom of the philosophical foundation of things. And so it can be weird, like somebody who only knows Dugan, for example, as a political ideologue, would encounter him somewhere saying that the, in liberalism, what's important is the individual. In communism, what's important is the class. In fascism, what's important is the state. In Nazism, what's important is the race. All of that is somehow, let's say, self-evident or, or at least you know, not, overly, um, not overly controversial. Then he says, okay, what about, the, what about the fourth political theory, this project that he's proposing? He says, well, the, the subject or the key actor or the center of that theory should be Dasein, this notion from Heidegger's philosophy. So that shows you how, how intimate the link is between his understanding of philosophy on one hand and his political, project, political ideological constructions on the other hand. So much so that, you know, it's not a nationalism, it's not a racism, it's not an eth ethnocentrism. It's a Heideggerianism in a way. It's about the human existence. So, and and Dasein, can you unpack? Is that the closest thing? Is that sort of Heidegger's word for like his solution or his theory of of, of what the uh, 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 unpack that and then uh, do it? Yeah. Sport. So there there are a couple of different ways of understanding it. One that I find is a helpful first approximation is this. So if I were to ask you, you know, what is the human being? Again, you might say a rational animal, you might say, you know, a bundle of drives or whatever the case is, or spirit, soul, and body. Let's imagine that there's some set of answers that you'd give to the question, what is a human being? Well, Dasein sort of names the most basic underlying uh, sort of definition of the human being as a self interpreting being. So without yet saying that we're a subject, without yet saying that we're a rational animal, without saying that we're body, soul, and spirit, it's what's presupposed by any possible definition, namely that we are somehow a self-interpreting existing being. And it's an open question yet as to what else we could say about that. Okay. So Dasein had been used in German philosophical lexicon to mean like existence. So, you know, the existence of my cup, you know, it's something that exists, right? But he, he isolated it specifically to talk about human existence. 
And he unpacked the word in as two constituents, da, which is sort of like the localization or spatialization or place. So at you yourself, I myself, anybody listening to this can confirm for themselves that they exist uh, as it were in a place or in a space. And they never have not been spatial and they never will not be spatial. Somehow our being there, being in a place, being in a space, being spatial is constitutive of our existence. We were not first not spatial, and then suddenly became spatial according to this analysis. Spatiality is constitutive of our existence. And that's sort of the da side of the da sign, that there's always a there, there for us. We don't just happen to be in it. We are it in a way. We're an unthinkable separately from it. It is a together. And the sign part of da sign is, the, is to be. So we are to be there. We are being there. We are existing in, in and as place. Okay, but that's still sort of vague. you know. But the point is that all of the other possible self-interpretations presuppose this very basic configuration. And what Heidegger said is, let's try to roll back the previous self-definitions and self-interpretations and see whether maybe there was more at this basic level that we haven't paid sufficient attention to. And so it becomes a sort of methodological operation. Can we bring to light something substantive and structurally, uh, let's say, essential or characteristic of who we are without having already ahead of ourselves interpreted ourselves as soul, spirit, body, subject, rational animal, et cetera? And so in his 1927 work, Being in Time, that's sort of the classical place for this, he did this what he called an existential analytic of Dasein, which means examining the existence that the existing being that we are bring to light our structural characteristics. And what marveled his contemporaries and continues to amaze his readers is that when you do that, you see a picture of the human being that is somehow on one hand, super uh, unfamiliar to us because it requires a different kind of language. We don't usually think about it in those terms. We're so used to self-interpreting ourselves in, in, you know, in the customary ways. So on one hand, it's very unfamiliar. And on the other hand, it's extremely familiar because it's an intimate description of the being that we ourselves are most fundamentally, you see? So he's trying to reel us back from our self-forgetting into this genuine understanding of who we are. But this is an important observation, I think, this has formed one of the key insights for me in my research on Heidegger when I was writing my book on his influence on schools of political theory. This operation of turning, returning ourselves to ourselves in Heidegger's own self-understanding requires a fundamental transformation. You're not the same person at the end of this process as you were at the beginning. Not just, you know, before it, you hadn't read Heidegger and after you have read him, it's, it's more like you were on the 10th floor and now you're on the first floor, okay? He says... His ultimate aim, the outcome of really entering into his thinking, is that we transform our self-understanding from rational animal, like a collection of body and reason, to something more fundamental. You don't just add some other characteristic to body and reason. You actually like dissolve the interpretation of the human being as body and reason because you've gone to a deeper level. You know, so he that's how Heidegger's self-understanding is definitely like he is a destiny for the human being, for the 
our future, for understanding where we came from, not as biological beings, but as beings who care about what it means to be. It's, an, it's a strange and amazing uh, journey, but that's what it is. Yeah, I'm imagining all, all the implications, even just like lingu- linguistically in terms of how we would change how, how we speak, right? Very much so. So one of the things that people may know about Heidegger, and you see it pretty soon when you start reading him, is that a lot of what he says can seem like a neologism. He's coining new phrases or he's using words in ways that are very unfamiliar and, like I said, jarring sometimes. But he said precisely because, uh, to give one of the famous, beautiful formulations of his, language is the house of being. How we speak, we don't just speak about things. Somehow our speaking is a speaking being, a speaking of being, a, a giving shape through the word to the revelation or configuration of being. Somehow there's a deeply, deeply close, essential, intimate relation between being the human being and speech, language, discourse. And so exactly right, as he tries to shift our relationship to being to something more original or, I mean, original, not in the sense of new, but original in the sense of at the origin, right? Original in the sense of like the wellspring uh, of our relationship to being, the language has to change as well. So I'll give you a simple example that conveys itself more through writing than through saying in this case. So he distinguishes between beings, the things that are what we'd normally call whatever things, objects, stuff, right? All, All of that beings and being in the singular being as that, which is common to being. So if I were to say, you know, what are my phone and cup have in common? Okay, I could say something about shape, something about weight, something about extension. But if I really abstracted from everything else, I would say what they have in common is that they exist. They're, they're, they have being in common. Somehow being is that which all beings have in common. But he wanted to get away ultimately from this distinction between beings and being to something more original. And in order to indicate this more original domain or realm or X or however we want to think about it for now, he had recourse to an archaic spelling of the word being. So in English, it's usually translated B-E-Y-N-G. Now, anybody like I know, for example, I have very uh, close proof of this because whenever I talk to my wife about Heidegger, which I've learned to do less, you know, and I talk about being with a Y, it's obviously incomprehensible because nothing, you know, there's nothing comprehensible about being with a Y unless you really get into the spirit of Heidegger's thought here. But he had to indicate lexicographically, right, with the changed spelling and archaic spelling that he's trying to get us to an archaic reality, so to speak, right? To something at the arche, at the beginning, at the principle. So same with Dasein, same with other formulations of his. He has to be very nuanced in the speaking and in the language. And he reminds his readers that a speaking is not just a speaking about. If we, if we regard all speech as speaking about objects or speaking about things, then we've taken way too much for granted. We're, we're not even on the 10th floor, we're on the 20th floor, right? So definitely language is implicated in a big way. And his reflections on language are a big part of his writing. It made me think of, I mean, this is very different, but I, I don't know if you've ever come across nonviolent communication or... Um, yeah. Yeah, they basically try to alter language too to say like, you don't say something like he is lazy because they, they just don't believe that that, that sort of that, that is true. They believe like, you know, he, you know, showed up you like uh you talk about things specific to, to to time and places and also you don't say things like this was done to me as opposed to i i did that so they're trying to alter language to alter our, our perception of reality 
Yeah, very much, very much so. So that's in line, in principle, with this kind of um, sensitivity to what's implied by our speech. Because normally we we wouldn't necessarily think if I, you know, if I just say something casually or habitually, I'm not always thinking, oh, I've just described something to this guy's existence, yeah. right? It's just no, I just speak about it. But in, another example besides nonviolent communication, one that is explicitly informed by Heidegger's work because I don't know if that's the case with a nonviolent communication. It may or may not be. But EST, which later became Landmark Education and I think is now called Landmark Worldwide, founded by a guy named Werner Erhard, uh, is a group transformation wow. uh, modality that expressly tried to operationalize Heidegger's um, teaching about who the human being is and what language is and put that into practice in a way that you don't have to be a philosophy professor to undergo the transformation and self-understanding. You just have to be a part of a conversation, you know, and sort of experience it over a weekend. So there's a book I've sort of been indirectly uh, drawing on the title of it to, to make a point a few times already. The book is called Speaking Being. It's a transcript of one of the early courses of this program. Uh, I think one of the early landmark forums they were called together with a running commentary by some Heidegger scholars. So wow. you see the like dialogical exchange of the course facilitator and the absolutely non-philosophical course participants who are there to undergo, you know, by the end of the weekend, they're <laughs> supposed to understand themselves as possibility as, as something totally un, un, unlike what they're used to thinking of themselves as, right? So you see a transcript of the course, which in itself is super valuable, but together with, you know, Heidegger scholars showing what parts of Heidegger's thought indirectly or directly, the course facilitator, I think in this case, Werner Erhard himself, um, is drawing on in having these conversations with, uh, with the participants. So for sure, his reflections on language, whether in, implicitly in things like nonviolent communication, the sensitivity to language, directly and expressly in landmark education, landmark modality. Um, he had that kind of effect on, on educators who thought that transformation was the goal of education. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll, I'll, I'll check, I'll have to check out that book. The, um, it also, speaking of sort of Papa, <laughs> but you know, uh, things inspired by philosophy, have you, um, have you read Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance? Oh, a long time ago. <laughs> are, are, are there connections there or is that just to, uh, or, do you not remember or? Um, I, honestly, I don't remember well enough to say. So uh, I don't remember well enough to say. I mean, I could loosely speculate on some recollections, but I, I'd rather not. Sure. Uh, I, I do think that, yeah, I mean, I, it, would be a, it would be a stretch. Yeah. But is, is it closer to like monism? I mean, is it closer to sort of uh, like what, what other things is it adjacent to or that have adapted it that I, we might recognize? So, you know, there are like a popular way of understanding, if I was to slot Heidegger into a school of thought that maybe gives some people, you know, pre-existing ideas about what, he, what he's doing, it would be existentialism. Okay, but there's some, there's some difficulties because not all, you know, he had his issues with existentialism yeah. as a school. But the idea that we want to turn our attention to, at, to existence, to what it means to exist, to the finitude of a human life, to the fact that to, to sustain reflection on our being towards death. What does it mean that each of us knows we're headed towards a finality, right? We don't know when it's going to be, but we know that it's going to be. And somehow reflecting on the fact that we are structurally headed towards death always <clears throat> can be 
illuminating in ways. So that's something that's methodologically very important for Heidegger, but in pop thinking, right, getting away from like the rigorous understanding of its place in his text, I think this idea that, you know, anxiety over existence, right, the me- the question of meaning and meaninglessness of life, right, and are we the source, are we the source of meaning and is meaning disclosed only in moments of meaninglessness when things seem to have lost their um their charm over us or their effect on us, right? So the relationship between uh, existence, death, anxiety, meaning, and and all of that, those are uh, traces of the influence of his thought, you know, in subsequent thinkers like Sartre, for example, and uh, and in others. It's a separate question how well they understood him, but it's indisputable that they got those issues, questions, and themes as a result of reading him. Okay, so, but there, I mean, I can give you another another example that may make it palatable for people who haven't read Heidegger, but who have been exposed, knowingly or unknowingly, to the effects of his thinking. So the, um, the deconstruction, postmodern deconstructionism, Derrida, and all of that is very much indebted to, is very much indebted to Heidegger. The whole, at some point, this American scholar Thomas Rockmore said about French philosophical thought that it was totally dominated by the influence of Heidegger. So they depart from him, you know, they, they, they have their disagreements philosophically and politically, and maybe even their disagreement, their philosophical disagreements somehow hinge on their political disagreements, you know, because after all, Heidegger was briefly a member of the Nazi party, et cetera, et cetera, you know, where the French postmodernism tends to be obviously uh, left anti-liberal. So, but deconstructionist thought, thought that everything, okay, the idea that truth with a capital T is a construction, is a historical construction. It's not an eternal essence. You know, this idea that the temporalization or historicizing of what we would normally consider a timeless essence or a trans-historical or eternal concept, that also, for better or worse, owes a lot to Heidegger. It's not his position, but it makes use of his discoveries and, and his methods and some of some of his operations. So that's that's a big thing. I called that in my research when it came when it became very clear to me the effect of Heidegger on Derrida and on these other French thinkers. I just called that, especially in contrast to Dugan, as a helpful a sort of schematic left Heideggerianism. So most may, many of the people who may be listening to this, uh, they may not. Th- have ever thought left Heideggerianism, but they certainly have been exposed to postmodern deconstructionist historicizing type thought. And the, the real insight is when you trace that back to its genesis in how these thinkers read, interpreted, and ultimately um, partially accepted and partially rejected Heidegger. He set the terms of that, you know, no Heidegger, no, no Derrida, no deconstruction in the way that we know it. Are they also on the 10th floor, the critical theory uh, or postmodernist? You know, here it's more complicated. So I want to just share with you that in the case of my graduate research on the reception of Heidegger among political theorists, my goal was to look across the political spectrum as I saw it or across the ideological spectrum so that I would include both, you know, somehow the far right, which Dugan roughly, somehow the far left, Derrida roughly, and, and people closer to the center, uh, Richard Rorty, a bit of a social democrat to the left, you know, Strauss genuine, genuinely, sorry, generally regarded as sort of like a neoconservative if you just do the ideological reading. So somehow I tried to capture a spectrum of thinkers and see how, since Heidegger was so important for each of them, why did they end up 
you know, at different levels, different places of the political spectrum. So when it came to Derrida, my initial hunch, my sort of uh, opening wager was that Derrida was a leftist at the outset whose reading of Heidegger just forces Heidegger into the pre-existing leftist commitment that Derrida had. In other words, I thought he was going to be something of an ideological hack and not a genuine philosopher, not a genuine thinker. And, you know, in other words, restated, I thought that he was on the 10th floor, you know, and not on, not on the first floor. But I have come to see the matter a little bit differently with respect to Derrida. I give him much more credit now than I did before. He is, there may be, you know, Derridians and Foucault followers and, you know, critical theorists of this and that kind who are very superficial when it comes to the understanding of the philosophical foundations or assumptions or premises of their positions. That's not Derrida. So the amazing thing about, in my view, one of the, besides all of the pressing political problems that today's citizens and countries face, whatever they happen to be, there's always some pressing political problem that needs to be addressed. Separately from that, okay, related, but still separately from that, there's a great opportunity to my mind. The opportunity is this. You survey the, the ideological schools that are present today, whether it's critical theory, deconstruction, whatever the case might be. And the, op, the, the insight or the observation that makes, it, makes this valuable is that however many of their practitioners may be superficial or hacks, okay, or obviously like caught up in a million contradictions that they're totally unaware of, but that are patently obvious to anybody from the outside, okay, regardless of whatever you can say about the bad practitioners, it's usually the case that there's a serious thinker somewhere at the bottom of that school, okay? That there's a genuine, if they stem from, for example, they stem from Nietzsche or they stem from Heidegger or they stem from some other such thinker. Well, there's no dismissing Nietzsche and Heidegger as ideological hacks, even if you can dismiss certain, you know, quasi-Heideggerians or quasi-Nietzscheans as hacks. So, and again, this is in a way what Socrates did back in the day. He talked to people who had an opinion about justice, an opinion about the good life, you know, an opinion about something. So sort of that represents like the not so well thought out starting point that a person might have wherever they got it from. What he saw is that there's a, you know, there's a partial truth to those opinions, but that on further examination, you know, you have to go deeper that the partial opinion points to a genuine question about the nature of the good, nature of the good life, nature of justice, of truth, right? Of all of that, of the soul and of uh, being itself, the question of the good. So same thing today. There are real thinkers, there to among them, in, in my view, who merit you know, our serious attention and, and thoughtful examination because they are proposing an understanding of human life that is you know, that, that ma can matter for us. Cause after all, you know, we have the possibility of wanting self-understanding, right? Not everybody want act, acts on that possibility. Not every human being is deeply interested in it. So, but we have the possibility of really gaining some self-understanding and these thoughtful philosophers, even when they don't dis even when they don't agree with one another even when they deeply disagree they at least show us some of the fundamental alternatives and give us something to think about something to think through and i would i would include derrida there so that's my little defense yeah. of derrida and as i say if you'd asked me some number of years ago 
I would have probably just been very dismissive. But that shows you what's possible when you turn to these guys carefully and thoughtfully. What's possible is actually to learn, you know, that there's more than met the eye at first glance. And, and the moment or, or the, the little bit argument, that, the crux of the argument that shifted your view on Derrida was? So in part, it's the, okay, I mean, I'll, let me say this in two ways, okay? So in part, it's his thoughtfulness, the fact that he was a genuine, because remember, my, my project was to see how these guys read Heidegger. Did they read Heidegger through an ideological lens primarily, or did they go through the rigorous and trans-ideological encounter with what Heidegger made available to think through? And I became convinced, and I am convinced, that Derrida genuinely thought through the issues that Heidegger raised. And my evidence for that was this really a series or a set of essays that he wrote about Heidegger where you know, I, having studied Heidegger, could judge is this an ideological hack, just um, you know, projecting leftism onto Heidegger, or is this guy really in there, right, thinking it through? And it was clear that he was definitely in there thinking it through. And sometimes reproducing Heidegger's position with a great deal of, like, really sympathetically, ably, and to my mind, even beautifully at times. Okay, so I gained a real appreciation of Derrida. As a, as a thinker, as a writer, and especially here as a, as a reader of, um, of Heidegger. Even when, I, you know, even when there's something I disagree with, I can no longer dismiss him. But to be more, I want to just take it from another angle and be more, even more specific. So as I, mentioned in my, uh, as I mentioned in my book, before I even entered academia, before I knew who Leo Strauss was, before I'd ever heard of Heidegger or Dugan, before all of that, I had, a, I had an interest, my main interest was in mysticism, in sort of like comparative mysticism, because I had read some Christian mystics, some Jewish mystics, Islamic mystics, you know, sort of like uh, atheistic, psychoanalytic, quasi-mystics. And what was amazing to me as I read that, besides the fact that they all seem to have had some deep human experience that sh- is really valuable and interesting and seems to show us something crucial about what it is... Uh, to be human, there was also a strange commonality in their experiences, I thought. So it was like, why, why is there something called the mystical experience that a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, a psychoanalyst, this other person, they all seem to be have they all seem to have experienced the same thing and then to have expressed it in the terms that were available to them given their tradition. Okay. So I was, anyways, mysticism was my primary interest before I entered academia. And it remained for me a uh, sort of hidden and uh, implicit motivator and, and uh, love and interest throughout my studies. And so when I was working on the Derrida chapter of the Heidegger research and of the Heidegger book, I saw that Derrida wrote with real um, skill and sensitivity about, about the mystic experience. Okay. So he, he himself said, there seems to be some parallel or commonality between what the mystics have said and what Heidegger seems to be saying. So when I saw, when I saw with what a sensitivity, you know, a delicacy and more, more importantly, like understanding, you know, when I saw with what understanding Derrida spoke about mysticism, that really predisposed me towards taking him seriously and less, less with less hostility than I had at the outset when I just saw him as a political hack. So this question of, um, of reaching, God, as it were, through the through transcending speech, right? That you because our word can only bring us so close, 
ultimately we have to like put language on the rack and transcend it. And when we do so, we have this sort of silent mystical union with God, a transverbal, transdiscursive. That's something that Derrida is really um, knowledgeable about. And I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, I wouldn't say he buys into it, but yeah. he, pre- he presents it really no, no, knowledgeably, ably and well. So mystic- those two things, his reading of Heidegger, his reading of mysticism, how can I not, how can I not <laughs> like the guy after that? It's just, I'll go to the mat for him now. <laughs> so you, you, in the book, uh, in the thesis you cover, uh, how Derrida on the far left, Dugan on the far right, Strauss be, you know, being seen ideologically as a neoconservative, and uh, Rorty being seen as a social democrat or communitarian or whatever they call him, um, you know, uh, take Heidegger in, in different ways. Uh, I know I'm asking you to do a, you know, a lot of work here. Can you summarize the, the differences in, and how they, 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 what they take from Heidegger that leads them to different perspectives? Yeah, I think so. I just want to say one thing quickly, though, which is that in the, in the actual book, so even though I selected them, you know, as to their place on the political spectrum, it's not a book about, you know, Rorty, the social democrat or Dugan, the far right or, uh, or Strauss, the neocon. It is really about the philosophical level of their engagement with Heidegger. So people should be expecting, you know, mo- mostly the, their reading of Heidegger, as opposed to, you know, there's nothing there about Strauss in the Iraq war. There's going to be nothing there about Dugan in Ukraine. It's really about Dugan and Heidegger, Strauss and Heidegger. So as far as where they land, I think that I can do this sort of compactly. Do you remember I said that Heidegger wanted to get us back to the origin, to the wellspring of our relationship to being, which he felt we'd become uprooted from or alienated from. And that to do that, one of his operations was to traverse sort of in reverse order the history of philosophy to show how at each stage there had been a distortion or there had been something that brought us further away from rather than closer to being itself okay to the um origin let's say so he called that destruction going over the history of philosophy to put sort of to bring out the premises or the shape of all of the schools of thought or all of the, you know, moments of the history of philosophy, not to tear them down, but to bring their presuppositions to light. He called that destruction. So Derrida accepts the destruction of the history of philosophy. He accepts the partiality in my view, or let me put it more generally, generally left Heideggerians, they accept the destruction of metaphysics, that the whole history of philosophy has been partial, that it's historically determined in some fundamental way, and that it does not ultimately get us to the truth of anything, okay? Like that it belongs in a chain, you see? So something like that. But what they don't do that Heidegger did, so Heidegger said, I'm going to bring us back to the original sense, original meaning of being, okay? I'm going to return us from the 10th floor to the first floor. And then this is the additional part, by thinking, by remaining on the first floor, by remaining at the wellspring of being that we become alienated from, my thinking will inaugurate another beginning of philosophy, one that no longer stems from a distorted, partial, alienated, uh, derivative set of presuppositions, but one that arises from the wellspring. Okay, so these two components are inseparable in some sense in Heidegger's thought, destruction of the history of philosophy or destruction of metaphysics and another beginning. What the left Heideggerians did, like Derrida, they are they accept the destruction of metaphysics, but they do not accept another beginning of philosophy. So they leave you with nothing. 
They tear down the traditional edifices of philosophy. And what you're left with is a sort of negative space, like a magnet whose two poles are facing each other and anything you try to put in the center gets pushed away or repulsed. So if I try to put the concept of man in between those two magnets, the negative magnetic force will deconstruct that concept. It'll tear apart man. If I try to put a hierarchy into that negative space, this negative magnetic force will deconstruct the hierarchy. So this type of thinking, it's very much akin to politically akin to democracy because it says that the unwillingness to have any concept serving as like a master orienting, you know, key force is akin to the ever chaotic change and you know arbitrariness of democratic government. Those two, the philosophical deconstructionism is akin to political democracy. They both lack a center orienting force. Okay. So, but anyway, Derrida and the left Heideggerians, they accept the deconstruction, they reject another beginning. Dugan, almost alone here, definitely alone among these four thinkers. And more broadly, I cannot find many people who do what Dugan has done here in their interpretation of Heidegger, probably for the geopolitical reasons that, you know, it's regarded as a slippery slope, you know, towards Nazism or something. Dugan says, destruction of the history of metaphysics, yes. And another beginning of philosophy, also yes. So he accepts Heidegger's notion of another beginning of philosophy, which is why Dugan's first book is called Martin Heidegger, The Philosophy of Another Beginning. This idea of another beginning of philosophy is sort of the centerpiece of Dugan's reading of Heidegger that the French Heideggerians leave out of the picture for this mix, mixed bag of philosophical and political reasons. Okay, so that gives you Derrida and Dugan. Strauss, in my reading, this is disputable, but as somebody who absolutely loves Strauss and always has, always will, is teaching about him shortly, and he's the first most important thinker you know, in my intellectual history, I'm going to try to be you know, as, as um, accurate and generous here as I can be in this disputable topic. But my view is that Strauss recognizes Heidegger as a unrefuted giant philosopher. Okay, so he's an absolute... Strauss, too, is a philosophical supremacist in the sense that he thinks the philosophical way of life is the best way of life. If he acknowledges that someone is a philosopher, that is extremely high praise, especially if he acknowledges that he's like an unrefuted philosophical genius, which I think Strauss, I will say on Strauss's behalf about Heidegger. So the dispute is this. Remember, I mentioned earlier that Strauss sees a conflict between the philosophical life and the political life. And this is a crucial theme in all of Strauss's writings. The way that he deals with that tension. And I think the way that he thinks is best in doing that, which he ascribes ultimately to Socrates, is that you have to combine your wisdom with moderation. His ultimate criticism of Heidegger, so far as I can tell, is that Heidegger did not pay enough attention to the tension between philosophy and politics, therefore to the need that we have of combining wisdom with moderation. In other words, Heidegger's Heidegger did not. Okay, let me re, let me restate this differently. Okay, for Strauss, we we give up our political judgment. We give up the possibility of sound political judgment when we say that all standards of judgment are historical. And when we give up our our ability to judge political realities with a rational, stable standard, we open the door to irrational, you know, accepting any tyrant as the 
dispensation of historical fate, which is really what he thinks happened to so many good German thinkers in uh, the 1930s. When they deferred to history, they just have no grounds on which to oppose the dispensations of fate. But in Plato and Socrates, we get the grounds for opposing dispensations of fate. Namely, we get a stable, rational standard of judgment. So Strauss thought that we need that for the sake of political moderation. We've lost it in modern philosophy, up to and including Heidegger, and we can only recover it on the basis of a return to Plato. Okay, so that's sort of Strauss's reasoning against Heidegger. But the, the nuance that I want to say is he didn't think that was a philosophical refutation of Heidegger necessarily, but it was definitely a political one. Heidegger gives us no ground for political moderation, okay? Because no stable rational standard, no political judgment, no political moderation. It's a complicated arrangement, but that's Strauss walking the line between the obligations of civic life and the obligations of philosophic life. Rorty is sort of in a league of his own here because what Rorty said, what Heidegger, Strauss, Derrida, and Dugan all have in common, in my mind at least, in my, on the basis of my research, is they all think philosophy first and foremost. They're all in their own way philosophical supremacists. For them, thinking about being and language and destiny, human essence, that is like the basis. That is the foundation. There is a first floor. You know, there is a ground floor. Rorty says, no, there isn't. There's no ground floor. You've been fooled by your speaking about these things. You know, you've been fooled by the image of an apartment. You've been fooled by the metaphors of high and low, you know, of, uh, of, of, so for Rorty, the desire to pin your political self-understanding or political teaching or ideology, whatever the case might be, political theory to a philosophical foundation is misguided because there's no such thing as a foundation. It's really an artifact of bad metaphors, you know, that we have just internalized. Like I said, metaphors of dependence, of foundation, of art, of building, of this and that. So, but what, what, what Rorty says though, is that Heidegger is very useful in showing us how we can, how we can sort of, um, relativize, trivialize, or let's say free up our relationship to words and concepts. So if you just erase Heidegger's view of, uh, like Rorty calls it Heidegger's nostalgia for being, you know, that we've become alienated from it, uprooted it, that we need to return to it, that we've lost something valuable. We need to regain it. He calls all that nostalgia. He says, if you just get rid of Heidegger's nostalgia and you interpret what he did in the spirit of like a useful tool, a set of useful linguistic, conceptual, philosophical tools, but totally devoid of any sense that they get deeper into the truth of things or into the human essence or into being itself. If you just set all of that, you know, nostalgia and fundamentalism and essentialism off to the side, Heider becomes super useful for the social democratic purposes of freely redescribing ourselves and each other in a way that we don't have to essentialize into class, gender, race, type, this or that. So somehow Heidegger gives him the key for becoming playful with language and with concepts and with ideas and uh, removing this hypnosis that we actually are getting at the truth of things. So I don't like that about Rorty because I share the <laughs> Derrida, Dugan, Strauss, and Heidegger's inclination towards philosophical supremacy, but still have to take Rorty seriously because, you know, he presents a genuine 
political philosophical alternative. One that says it's, you've really been hypnotized by your metaphors, learn to use them for the sake of freedom and not for the sake of truth. What he said is take care of freedom and truth will take care of itself. If you can use, if you can free yourself from linguistic hypnosis, then truth will be whatever emerges as a function of free human discourse and uh, construction. I don't like that, but Heidegger helps us see this underlying position with respect to the truth that's implied in contemporary social democratic uh, pragmatism. Yeah, thanks for that for that outline. Is Strauss your favorite because he 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 ties the 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 politics uh, and and the philosophy, or because he's a philosophical supremacist, or, or why of the four is is he your favorite? I think that Strauss has the best combination of the two things that are most important without sacrificing either one of them. Those two things are uh, a decent and good life together in the political community and the best possible human life, one that may transcend the political community. He doesn't do one at the expense of the other, and he doesn't water down each of them. So the combination of wisdom and moderation, I think that you get in Strauss's reconstruction of the history of political philosophy, that you get in his criticisms of modern, um, immoderate political teachings like you have in Machiavelli and Nietzsche, even in Heidegger, and the, the ama- his amazing, amazing skills as an expositor of old texts, you know, because Strauss can point you to something that you think you understand, like a platonic dialogue. Okay. You tap a platonic dialogue, you say, okay, whatever, Plato, you know, we know so much more than he knew. We know about the dialogue form. We know about this. We know about that. Like, what could you possibly tell us that we didn't know about understanding a short platonic dialogue or a short Socratic dialogue written by someone else other than Plato? And when you read Strauss's commentaries, at least when I read Strauss's commentaries, it was just amazing to me what he accomplishes in bringing these texts to life in a way that they never, in my view, could never happen without his guidance. So not only, in my view, is he the gold standard as a teacher, and he's a mensch, and the combination of wisdom and moderation, in my view, is just... um, the jackpot. So I love Heidegger as a philosopher. Dugan as a thinker is deeply appealing to me in many ways. Derrida, I already said how much respect I have for his knowledgeability and the way that he writes and some some things there that he does that are just, uh, you know, there's a lot about him. His commitment to just, Derrida's commitment to justice is very admirable to me. But Strauss, more than anybody, puts these two things together. The question of the good life as a community, that's the question of the best regime, really, the question of the best political organization or best political order and an understanding of the philosophical life as the life of the greatest human happiness. So he's to me, I don't think he refuted Heidegger. Somehow I think Heidegger's even possibly the better philosopher, strictly speaking on just philosophical terms, but because Heidegger didn't include reflection on the political situatedness of the philosopher in the way that Strauss does in his recovery of the platonic tradition, I go Strauss for the win. <laughs> and I'm curious where, where Strauss and Dugan um, differ politically, uh, both in their outcomes and, and, and thoughts that maybe led to that outcomes. And is the simplest way of describing Dugan's sort of political theory, and this is probably an oversimplification, but like if liberalism is, um, you know, individ, uh, egalitarian individualism, maybe, you know, Dugan's fourth political theory is a sort of collectivist hierarchy. <laughs> so 
that it is hierarchical in a sense, but it's not a reverse, you know, antipode of liberalism in the sense that individual on one hand, collective on the other. In fact, that's that would be more misleading than illuminating. And Dugan himself has written a few essays. For example, there's a volume called Heidegger in Russia and Eastern Europe. And there's an essay there by Dugan that I translated, which deals with this point. That's why I'm referring, uh, referring to it here, where he says, on the basis of Heidegger's philosophy, or let's say on the basis of a different understanding of these issues, neither individualism nor collectivism. Okay, so that's already something new for us because it's like, well, you know, if you define the individual in contrast to the collective, then it might seem like if it's neither individualism nor collectivism, what are you left with? But it's another example of 10th floor, ground floor, because what he says is that who constitutes the individual and who constitutes the collective is still an unclarified question in either case. It's the who question that we want to get at, not the how many question, which is sort of like individual or collective. So when we drill down to the who question, then it's a total different understanding of these things, of individual, of the individual, of the collective, of you know, the aggregate, of the group, of the part, of the whole. So he wants to take us down to a deeper level. Heidegger is his primary way of doing that, although he draws on other, other traditions at times that he thinks are helpful in, in uh, making the point like you know, sometimes he talks about Jung's collective unconscious, or sometimes he talks about themes from cultural anthropology. He has a book in Russian called Ethnosociology, which I translated into English. It's available in two parts. You see how he draws on some of the schools of cultural anthropology to make this point. Or, for example, there's um, sometimes he draws on themes from mysticism, from theology and elsewhere. But in no case does he just want to oppose the hierarchy to the e equality or collective to individual, he's trying to get us completely into a different... I'll give you another example from the fourth political theory book. So in the fourth political theory book, there's a chapter on theory and practice. You know, he says, here's another example of a pair, right? So you have hierarchy, equality, individual, collective. You might say you also have theory and practice. He says the fourth political theory does not, even though it has, you know, fourth political theory in its name, in this chapter, he explains that what you actually want to get to is something that is between theory and practice, but not between them horizontally, but between them as preceding them at a deep, as a deeper root, the shared root of those two. So same with individual and collective. What do they have a shared root? They do sort of, it's the who that gets quant, you know, quantized or quantified out into those numbers. And with equality and hierarchy, same thing there too. There's some sense in which the fourth political theory is, has some egalitarian component and some sense in which it's hierarchical. It's definitely elitist in the sense that it thinks there is a hierarchy of human types. They're not racial. They're not sexual. They have to do with the activities of the human soul. And, and as I mentioned, Dugan is someone who thinks that philosophy is man's highest activity. And therefore, you know, the philosopher is the highest type. So it is, it is hierarchical in that sense. It is. But, um, but so, for example, is, is, uh, you might say like fascism is, is collectivist and hierarchical, but Dugan is anti-fascist, right? So, you know, you might say communism is, collect, is collectivist and egalitarian, but he's anti-communist. So I think the most helpful metaphor drawing from him and Strauss and Husserl and Heidegger is that uh, it's really about trying to go to the deeper root of these divisions and see whether there's something we're presupposing that we haven't clarified. 
That's what yeah. Dugan thinks, at least. And, and so maybe this is way too oversimplistic, but when we hear communism, we get a visual of, of what that means, right? Everyone is is uh, is equal, uh, you know, enforced by government. Um, when, when we get a, a vision of fascism, you know, the different versions of it, but you sort of get a vision of of what that means. Like, what is the picture being painted by Dugan's theory in terms of just like the actual governance? So some of these things he's written about, some less so, some I'm familiar with, some less so. But one, I think, obvious place to look is in the international order because one of the ideas of the fourth political theory as he develops it is multipolarity there should be many civilizational blocks so somehow internationally he links the he says okay remember i said heidegger wants to drive us to the ground floor he calls it dasein so what dugan says is that when you get to the ground floor there's also going to be like unit one unit two unit three unit four so in other words there's a fundamental plurality a fundamental difference, even at the ground floor, among Daseins. This thesis he calls the existential plurality of Dasein. It's, it's an addition, it's a development of Heidegger that Heidegger maybe only indicated but didn't, uh, didn't establish, or, whereas Dugan has made it like his key, one of his key intellectual projects. So what Dugan says is, if Dasein is the actor or key uh, unit or subject of the fourth political theory, and if Dasein is plural, which he thinks it is, then the corresponding world order won't be unitarian. It won't be a single world order, whether a liberal world order or a communistic world order. It's going to be uh, a multipolar world order where the poles are civilizations understood as the political projections or configurations of a specific Dasein. So Dasein here is not, Dasein is kind of collective. It's not exactly the right terms to think about it, but there's like, a, he has this approach where he interprets Dasein, Daseins as peoples. So there's like Russian Dasein, Spanish Dasein, okay, all of that kind of thing. And from that perspective, what you get is a existential, civilizational, international multipolarity. And it has some key prescriptive policies, like it's against the it's for regionalism it's for like i said multipolarity it's against unipolarity it's also um it's also against certain other uh against certain kind of transnational or subnational it's against the nation state it argues for a specific type of configuration so he develops these works uh in his international relations theory in his geopolitics and in a series of books he has called no omachia um wars of the mind wars of the intellect but that's sort of on the uh, theoretical side so there are other things like he he's not for um, consumeristic society, you know, so the policies are are meant to be consistent with the Dasein of the people, not the people understood as the laboring masses, but the people understood as an existential entity. So the policies should be consistent with their deepest structural features, and it should also be elevating, it should be along the classical model in the sense that it takes its standard by what's best in us. So something where you, one place where we can combine Strauss and Dugan, interestingly, in my view, is that both of them wanted to get away at least, uh, at least in print, let's say, okay. Although in practice, I just leave that to the side, but at least in print, they both wanted to get away from the modern commercial Republic to the classical alternative where what's important is not acquisition property and, you know, the protection of, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, i.e. the pursuit of property and consumption, but rather uh, 
man's flourishing excellence, virtue, you know, and the height, the, in this sense, man's vertical, right? If we think about a life of consumption, it's sort of like, roughly speaking, you know, the, 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 the passions or the desires or the pleasures are what's dominant, right? The lower pleasures, the lower um, passions and the lower desires. And what both Strauss and Dugan want is to go back to a view where we see a vertical in the human soul, a vertical in the human spirit, and where the society is oriented around, on one hand, what's at the height of that vertical, namely like the peak human flourishing and excellence that's according to our uh, nature. And on the other hand, what's at the root of that vertical? This is really where Dugan breaks, I would say, with Strauss. Strauss takes with Plato his orientation by man's flourishing, by his end, his intellectual perfection, really being a philosopher. But, uh, but because Strauss rejected sort of Heidegger and Dugan doesn't, Dugan also wants to point to our root, to our existence, to our openness to being separately from intellectual contemplation, right? To just to our, uh, yeah, to our existential dimension in a way that wasn't true for Strauss. So sometimes, let me put this differently. It's not always obvious what the policies, what the positive policies would be, but it's usually clear enough what they would not be, what they're oriented against. And the basic principle that they're, that they're for is existential multipolarity, human excellence, philosophy, and no more triviality, emptiness, nihilism, uh, you know, relativism, triteness, stupidity, ugliness. All of those things are definitely targets of uh, Dugan's ire and, um, and, uh, and even warfare. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that's a good place to wrap. I want to be mindful of your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I highly recommend uh, Mike, Michael's book uh, on, on Heidegger um, and also his, uh, his excellent podcast and, and, and YouTube channel um, and, uh, and his upcoming uh, course uh, on Leo Strauss with, uh, with Justin Murphy. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. I'll put links in the show notes so people can check, check all of it out. Uh, this has been a great episode. Thank you for the invitation.